Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode, Jack and I talk with Daniel Taylor, accounting professor at University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. Daniel's expertise and research is focused on corporate transparency, accounting fraud, insider trading, and corporate governance. We spend a good portion of our time talking about insider trading, how to define it, how prevalent it is in today's market, and how it might be better regulated in the future. We then move on to SEC investigations and disclosures and how Daniel is teaching investigative techniques through the Wharton Forensic Analytics Lab. As always, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion with the Wharton School's Daniel Taylor. Daniel, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I got in touch with you after reading a Bloomberg article. The title of that piece was Most Americans Believe the Stock Market is Rigged and They're Right. Um, hopefully after our talk today, people aren't really feeling this way, but I think this conversation is going to be uh, a, a good discussion and an enlightening discussion around insider information, insider trading, how much it's happening, how much is being reported company disclosure patterns and some of the other areas of research that you're focused on. Um, but before we get into those things specifically, I just thought we could sort of start maybe at a higher level and start with some definitions just to set the context and maybe give a little history here. So maybe to start, if you could define what insider information actually is, and when you're going through that, helping us understand what those important terms in this definition, like material and non-public actually mean and that we should understand as investors. Yeah. So, I mean, material, non-public information, right? Let's, let's take that, that word gets thrown around or a series of words gets thrown around a lot. So material means that it would alter the valuation uh, of the company to the average or some hypothetical representative investor. So basically it would move stock price by a significant amount. Uh, that would be material. And then non-public is information that is not, you know, has not been publicly disseminated. It's not in the public domain. Now, you know, as you know, there are lots of things that are public, but aren't actually in the public domain, you know, something hidden on Edgar or some paper file in somewhere, but those would still be considered public as long as they are accessible, um, uh, by the investing public. So you've got this combination of it's not in the public domain. And if it was in the public domain, it would move prices. That's material, not public information. Can you walk us through some of the history here with insider trading? I mean, like when I kind of think of it, I sort of think back to, you know, Wall Street, Gordon Gecko type stuff, but obviously that's not really what uh, probably what a lot of insider trading, that's not how it is now. So just in terms of like the history of it, maybe some of the current rules, the SEC obviously regulates it, but. You know, and what has changed, I guess, over the years that makes um, researchers like you, gives you the ability to look at this stuff at a lot more granular level. The listeners need to know there is no law against insider trading. Okay, so there's not like a statute or something that says thou shalt not engage in insider trading. The existing uh, insider trading prosecutions are all done under anti-fraud statutes. So there's not like some you know, bill that Congress passed somewhere that says thou shalt not engage in insider trading. As a consequence of that, 
there really hasn't been a formal definition of insider trading. You know, it's kind of like when the judge said, well, you know, there's no definition of pornography, but I know when I see it. That's kind of, unfortunately, the state of existing insider trading law. There's two sort of well-accepted theories of insider trading laws. One is uh, the classical theory of insider trading. And so this would apply to your corporate officer and director, right? So you can imagine an officer or director knows that they're going to announce earnings, knows that the earnings is going to be a dud and that the market's going to not like it and stock prices are going to fall and decides to trade in advance of the earnings, right? So that, that would be uh, classical in the sense that they're violating a fiduciary duty or uh, uh, some other duty of confidence, duty of care, some other duty that they're violating. Um, then there's misappropriation, right? So misappropriation would be something that might not apply, could, but might not apply to a director or officer, um, but would be someone basically stealing the information for their own personal gain. So an excellent case of misappropriation is, um, was Capital One. This is in the public domain. Uh, Capital One had some credit card analysts that were looking at the transactions at some retailers like Abercrombie and American Eagle um, in real time. So they're seeing the credit card receipts come in and those credit card analysts decided that they were going to front run the earnings announcement using the real-time sales data that they were getting from Capital One, who was their employer. But they weren't authorized to do that, obviously. And so they were misappropriating Capital One's information for their own personal gain. And so they were uh, tried under the misappropriation theory. So those classical that might apply to corporate officer and director and then the misappropriation would be, you know, if you steal the information or, or expropriate it for your own, for your own benefit. What I think has changed, I mean, two things have changed. Um, the first is the amount of analytics that are available um, and, you know, the level of data that's available in the market. So in the 80s, you know, you did not have disclosure requirements where corporate insiders had to disclose their trades within two business days. You did not have electronic tick by tick, quote by quote, uh, electronic data available to the masses cheaply. Uh, and so with changes in disclosure of around the trades of corporate insiders, uh, with changes in the availability of high frequency market data, uh, abnormalities in trading are easier to detect and detectable by a wider set uh, of the universe. So before maybe there would only be maybe five firms capable of, of detecting these abnormalities. And now, you know, anybody in their, in their basement or their garage that wants to pay for access to these data feeds, uh, then they're relatively cheap, uh, can, can get the data and do the, do the algorithm. So that's kind of like the, I guess the, you know, from the beginning to the end or to, to the current, uh, to the current state. Yeah. I would imagine that capital one example. I mean, I don't know how big the trades were, but I mean that you're only going to uncover that with, you know, advanced analytics, sort of looking at those trades and looking at, at those abnormalities in the trading data. Yeah. And, and the SEC runs some very impressive, um, software. So they've put in the public domain, they have two pieces of software. One's called Atlas and the other one is called Artemis. And, um, one of those is a relational program, uh, that pulls in what's known as blue sheet data. FINRA blue sheets, some of your, uh, uh, listeners might be familiar with that. It's basically when the SEC has a suspicion that trading occurred, they go to the brokers, they get the blue sheets, blue sheets have every trade, every individual, every account, the wealth, the income, the employer of the individual, and then they run that through a machine learning algorithm to figure out relations. 
Uh, and so they're able to, once they have the suspicion, they're able to find some really interesting connections. There's examples where the plumber did the trading and, you know, so you can imagine somebody who gets the tip, doesn't want to trade himself because he's connected to a broker. His plumber comes over to his house every week to fix the thing and convinces his plumber to trade on the tip in exchange for kind of the profits. Right. And so the only way that you would detect that is you would see in somebody's account, like the plumber's account, every time there's an earnings announcement or an M&A, you'd see maybe some out of the money options or a blip in trading. And then the question would be, well, where does the plumber live? Where could he possibly get the information? And you'd have to sort of, you know, do a classic uh, investigation to figure that out. On the corporate side, what executives have to disclose their trades and how quickly do they have to do it? Is it like real time or? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. Um, so there's something known as section 16 officers and directors. So if you're in the C-suite or you're a director, um, or you are a 10% owner, um, you have to disclose your trades within two business days electronically on form four. And that form four is posted on Edgar for the, for the whole public, uh, for the whole public to see. Uh, and I should, I should note that is only required perversely only required of us domiciled firms so if you are us listed but not us domiciled so maybe you know your headquarters isn't is in china or hong kong or somewhere or in the uk so astrazeneca would be lumped in this group um you do not have to file uh, the trades of your officers and directors uh at all uh on anchor so it's, it's one of these weird cases where the disclosure regime is more arduous for the U.S. domiciled U.S. listed than for the, uh, foreign listed entities. So a lot of, there's been a lot of talk recently in some media articles, but out of the financial times on the trades of, uh, corporate executives of some of these Chinese companies that are now find out will eventually be delisted. And that's really hard data to get. That's not publicly available on Edgar. We're going to talk about a, a few of the different papers you've written around these topics. But before we do, I just wanted to sort of set the lay of the land. In terms of insider trading, you know, it seems like there would be two kinds. There'd be sort of the illegal insider trading, and then there'd be the kind where maybe you're skirting the law, but following the letter of the law. How prevalent do you think both of those two types of tradings are? are? Well, it's, you know, it's, I think you've really put the nail on the head in some sense. You've really nailed it. Because when I say, I think that, you know, like, the system is rigged and most American, you know, most Americans feel that way. That's, you know, that's been documented in the survey and they're right. I think a lot of it is that gray area between what's allowed under current law and maybe what should or shouldn't be allowed. The fundamental issue is that there is no law against insider trading. So as a consequence, when the SEC or the DOJ or plaintiff wants to bring an insider trading case, they look to the past. And they say, does this insider trading case fit in with previous insider trading cases? And if the answer is no, then they'll be very reluctant to bring it. Even though, you know, most people would say, yeah, yeah, that case should, that's definitely insider trading. It's just not insider trading of the type that would happen in the 1970s when most of these cases, sort of the foundational cases were, were brought. And so I, I think that there is significantly more trading in the gray area. Um, cases where I would say the average American or even the average, um, you know, CFA would say, yeah, that should be prosecuted as insider trading, but may fall outside of the narrow scope of, of what, uh, lawyers would consider to be traditional insider trading. So let me give a great example. It's before the courts. 
the SEC's uh, charged, and I don't they the uh, defendant um, has not settled, so it's ongoing. Um, so this was a case. It's the Panawat case that the SEC is is currently pursuing, um, rather than sort of just rearticulate the case and just give some hypotheticals. Um, the 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 individual is working at a company and learns from the CEO that the company called Company A is going to get taken over by Company B. Okay, so you work at A and you learn that you're going to get bought out by B at a very large premium. Okay, within 30 minutes of learning that, and, I, and I'm sort of em embellishing a little bit, uh, so you have to read the read the case to learn the actual facts. You decide to buy out of the money call options. So it's not public yet. But you don't buy out of the money call options in your firm. Remember, your firm is the one that's getting, getting bought at a high premium. You buy out of the money call options in a peer firm competitor that operates in the same niche industry. And, you know, it might not be surprising to some of you that follow markets that, you know, once the, once it was announced that the one firm was getting taken over at a very large premium, you know, that there, the stock prices on the peers rose in sympathy. Now that would fall from my opinion, because it's, it hasn't been tried yet. That would fall under misappropriation. The information was provided by the CEO to the employee in confidence and they traded on it. What the rub is, is that the defense is arguing and some of the lawyers that I've talked to are arguing, no, 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 that's not trading with material non-public information because trading with material non-public information means he has to be trading in the firm in which he learns the information about. So he didn't learn information about firm C, which is what he traded. He learned information about firm B. And so he traded in firm C. So that, you know, that's never been tried before. That's a novel application of insider trading law. I would hope that most students of markets would look at that and say, that's insider trading. Um, because we know that securities are correlated. So price of security B correlated with price of security C. So that means that information about security B can also be relevant to security C, right? So if you know that Pepsi is getting out of the diet soda market, probably relevant to Coke's share price when it becomes public. Um, and so that's a great example where there's this gray area. The law is, is not yet settled, but where I think most people would say, yeah, that's, that should be uh, considered insider trade. This is sort of an aside, but what happens when information is not provided in confidence? So for instance, if that same CEO, if somebody who doesn't work in the company is in the elevator with them or something and they, and they overhear that information, can they use that information or is that insider information? So this is, this is where, you know, somebody's going to get in trouble, whether it's the trader or the tipper, somebody may have violated a duty of confidence. Um, and so it could be the CEO that ends up getting in trouble for not, you know, taking necessary steps to protect the information, or it could be, uh, you know, the trader, uh, that gets in trouble. There've been interesting cases where, you know, a lawyer is working on, uh, an M&A deal and they go home for Thanksgiving and are talking about the deal with their parents and the dad of the lawyer engages in some trading. Cool. Who, who is at fault here? Is it the dad who traded or is it the, the lawyer who was blabbing about, about the deal? Um, you know, somebody's going to pay for it. It's just a question of the facts and circumstances in terms of whether it's the person who's sharing the information, violating a duty of confidence to their employer, or maybe, uh, the dad. So. So facts and circumstances in that case. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot of gray area in all of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, there have been attempts, uh, most recently by the house to introduce bills that would actually codify what insider trading was. 
um, and that would codify certain penalties and that would make it easier for courts and our enforcement agencies to say like, okay, this is, this is clearly, uh, inside the bounds of insider trading. This is clearly outside the bounds of, of insider trading. But right now everything is based on case law and case law, you know, builds from when it starts. And so it's really, really hard to create a path defining litigation, you know, because that's, you're basically generating precedent. And I think that's what we need, but I, I can understand why a lot of, you know, lawyers are, are reluctant to, you know, redefine precedent. Uh, in preparing for this, I came across a really interesting paper you wrote, Gaming the System, Red Flags of Potential 10B51 Abuse. And I, I didn't actually even know what a 10B51 plan was uh, before I prepared for this. So this is really interesting to me, but I, I want to talk about that paper. But first, can you maybe just describe what a 10B51 plan is and sort of why they were put in place? Yeah. So I guess it was in the early 2000s, um, there was this notion, uh, they created this rule 10B51, uh, and, and that's designed to give executives uh, the ability to sell large chunks of shares without, you know, like running afoul of suspicion or insider trading rules, right? So you've got top CEOs, top executives, they get paid a lot in share compensation. They need to sell, but they don't want to raise suspicion. They want to, in some sense, be given a shield from uh, legal scrutiny or from uh, uh, prosecution. So 10B51 is basically this notion that there would be a pre, a commit quasi commitment to uh, a series of sales. So you basically write down on a piece of paper, hey, uh, you know, a series of limit orders, sell a thousand when the stock price hits 10, sell another thousand when it hits, you know, 10 and a quarter, another thousand when it hits, you know, like 11. And you'd submit that plan to the broker and then you'd walk away, sort of like a small mini blind trust. And then the broker would just execute your instructions uh, as written. And so if it came out that you sold right before you announced really bad earnings for the quarter, you could say, well, you know, well, whoa, whoa, you know, like I gave those instructions to the broker six months ago. At the time that I gave the instructions, I didn't know what was going to happen this quarter. So it moves the inquiry on whether the person had material non-public information, not on the date of the trade, but on the date that the plan or the instructions were given. And so at the time this plan was created, the idea would be just as I described, you set up a schedule of sales or, or purchases, and then those would execute automatically and you wouldn't interfere. Um, the problem is, is that the rule didn't actually specify any of those things. So the schedule could be a single trade, um, doesn't have to be, uh, in advance. So there are instances in which you can adopt the 10 v one plan and it can sell the same day. Uh, so it's in advance legally, but like in the spirit of the law, probably not. Um, and it doesn't have to be like a dollar cost averaging over time. It could just be one single large trip. Uh, and so that's sort of what we were doing with that paper is looking to see how these plans are actually being used in practice and whether their use in practice is consistent with the spirit of their creation. You actually, in another interview I listened to in preparation for this, you gave an interesting example of the Pfizer CEO, um, and, and him establishing one of these plans, I think around when the vaccine was declared effective. Can you just tell that? Cause I think that's a really good example of how this works. Yeah, I mean, I think at both Pfizer and, and Moderna, they've gotten their share of, you know, scrutiny, negative press headlines for their trading uh, at the outset of the pandemic uh, in relation to these plans and in relation to uh, material developments uh, for, you know, for their vaccine. And, you know, how it's supposed to work is you set up the plan, you say, okay, put these shares, just sell them over the next six months. 
I'm golf. I'm going to, I'm going to go off and do some golfing. I'm going to develop the drug vaccine. The plan is just, just automatically execute. Uh, in both of these cases, however, both in Moderna and certainly in Moderna and maybe to a lesser extent in Pfizer, the timing of when those plans were put in place got called into question because the plans were often put in place a few days before, uh, we would say material news was announced related to the vaccine. Uh, either trials were beginning or some results of the trials or, uh, uh drug development. And I think Moderna in particular, um, there are NPR interviews, uh, out there where it's like the plan got put in place, like the day before they announced, uh, the trial results now. So you'd say, okay, well that's insider trading. Well, is it right? So under the law, it's not just enough to have tradable material, non-public information. You have to benefit from doing so. So if you sell before the stock price goes up, you didn't actually benefit from selling right now, if it was the case that those plans were put in place, they announced the results and then the stock nosedive and they were announcing negative results. I think you'd have a very different narrative, um, around those companies. And it, it wouldn't be surprising to me if they actually got called in front of the SEC or, or the DOJ, but in this case, they were selling as the stock price was going up, which is consistent with limit orders. Right. So I put in place a series of limit orders to sell progressively higher prices. The stock is soaring because we have news. It's going to be triggering limit sell orders for every time you know, the stock price keeps going up. So what you saw is stock prices raging up. Oh, he's selling as the stock price keeps going up. I haven't seen the Pfizer or the Moderna plans, but the behavior of those plans is consistent with, you know, with limit orders getting triggered. What would you, I mean, this is probably has a lot of answers given what you've said so far, because it doesn't seem like there are many rules around this, but. You know, if you were to modify these plans to, to make them more effective in, in preventing the types of behavior we don't want, I mean, what could, what could be put in place? Oh, so much, so much. Um, so first thing is plans don't have to be disclosed. They don't have to be disclosed to the SEC. They don't have to be disclosed to the public. You don't have to disclose that the trade was pursuant to a plan. So none of these things are public disclosure. So I'm very much of the sunlight is the best disinfectant. So if you're not engaging in opportunistic behavior, disclose it. And so when someone says to me, well, I don't want to disclose my plan. You know, that's too much, too burdensome. I really start to wonder what it is they're doing with, you know, with the plan. So disclosure, disclose the plan, disclose the trades that are pursuant to the plan. You can modify and cancel the plan. So it's, I said a quasi commitment, quasi blind trust, because it's not really blind. You can modify it at any time, cancel it at any time disclose the modifications and the cancellations. Uh, and I think that we should put in, a um, something called a cool off period. And this is, um, a recommendation of the previous, uh, SEC chair, uh, Clayton and the current SEC chair Gensler. So when something is bipartisan these days, it's probably, it's probably bipartisan for a reason. Uh, and so in this case, it was a cool off period of four to six months. So from the time you signed the plan to the time the plane can execute its first trade, it has to be a delay of four to six months. And one of the reasons for that is to prevent these, oh, well, I'll sign the plan and it'll sell tomorrow, or I'll sign the plan. It'll sell tomorrow and the earnings announcements in three days. All of those fall under this 10B51 plan and the 10B51 plan conveys an affirmative defense against insider trading. So when the plan was written, it, it gives insiders this legal shield and we don't want to be giving that away for free. 
if you want the legal shield, you have to give something up. And that is this demand for immediate execution. If you have an unexpected bill for Wharton tuition or, you know, an unexpected bill for a house or a yacht or, you know, beach vacation, place a market order. You know, don't use a 10 v one plan. 10 v one plans are for long-term diversification. And if that's what they're used for, then I think they should be entitled to a legal shield. This is sort of a more broad version of the question I just asked, but in terms of just insider trading in general by corporate executives, you know, if the government wanted to do a better job of limiting that, I mean, how would they do that? Is that a matter of going back to what we talked about at the beginning, that there should actually be laws passed by Congress on the books in order to do this? Or what, what do you think would be the things we should do to maybe limit this in general? Well, we could, I could talk for an hour about, uh, about the things, the things, the things to do, where to start. Uh, first thing, active surveillance, active surveillance, the current surveillance system. And this is again, in the public domain is once the sec has a suspicion of insider trading, they get these blue sheets, the blue sheets come in and then they run it through various algorithms. Why can't they be running algorithms in real time? I'm running algorithms on all form four trades from officers and directors in real time right now. It's in the public domain. We're not talking about an invasion of privacy because officers and directors have to disclose their trades within two business days. Okay. They could be running algorithms on that to screen right now for abnormally performant trades, right? What is an abnormal performant trade? Well, you know, like you probably shouldn't consistently earn alpha. Like if you're going to buy your stock 75 times in the past three years, you probably shouldn't win or earn alpha 75 out of 75 times. So there are lots of metrics that people can use either a notion of alpha or win rates, what fraction of the alpha or what fraction of your trades are in positive alpha. Um, and are they proximate to earnings announcements or material events? Edgar, you know, the SEC puts out earnings information, 10 Qs, 10 Ks. It's very easy to design an algorithm to look at the proximity before the trades and those material events. And that's really all of the basis of all of my academic papers is, is to sec effectively running those, you know, algorithms on, on public data. But the other thing is, I think there needs to be a cultural change. Um, there are many people that think that, well, corporate insider would never engage in insider trading because why would they disclose it? If they were going to engage in illicit activity, why would they disclose it? Well, you know, that's, that's true at a certain level, but you know, the, the masterminds are really going to be the ones who disclose it because they know that people are going to think like that. The masterminds are also going to be asking for advice of counsel from their general counsel. And so one can imagine, you know, the quick defense would be like, well, I asked the company GC and the company GC said it was okay. So that would be an, another type of defense that would like ward off some, you know, some legal remedy, but that shouldn't ward off. Uh, legal remedy. I mean, I, I think if you look at the actual insider trading cases the SEC has brought, uh, two things. First, they're at an all-time low. So there's a great article in NPR uh, came out, I guess, at the beginning of the COVID crisis that insider trading cases are now at the lowest since Reagan. So like the 80s. So one of that means one of two things, right? Either everybody's gotten more honest and there's less insider trading in the market, right? It's a good outcome or in the SEC has other priorities. And, you know, like I have an opinion about which of those things it is, but you know, like everyone should make up, make up, make up their own mind, but changing that mentality to recognize that officers and directors are not above 
are not above the law and can engage in illicit activity. The second thing is, if you look at the insider trading case he has brought, they're typically against uh, either retail investors or small investors. And I think the median disgorged profits is like 200,000. It's peanuts. And so I tell my students, I teach a forensic analytics class. The SEC is really good. Well, this will maybe test the age of, of your listeners. Really good at catching Dr. Evil from Austin Powers. You know, the guy who's going to tell you what his plan is. You know, he's going to make maybe 200,000, 35,000 in the market, trading out of the money puts and calls right before the earnings announced. They're not so good at catching Emperor Palpatine who's playing the long game, who knows how to hide his trades, who's not stupid enough to buy out of the money, puts in calls right before the earnings announcement, who might ease into the position slowly over time. Uh, and so I, I think that, you know, the things that need to change are the use of the analytics uh, that needs to increase and the mindset uh, of our enforcement agencies. And I've kind of been pleased by what Gensler's agency has been putting out, but like everyone, you know, we judge people based, especially these days, we judge people based on actions not based on words. Is part of this a staffing thing? I mean, do they, I don't even know, but is the staff working on this at the SEC? Is it less than it used to be, or is it really the same and there's really other things going on? I mean, I can't say. I don't know the amount of staff that the SEC has on it. You know, if you, uh, you know, see in the press what the current director of enforcement um, uh, puts out, what the deputy puts out, what Chairman Gensler has put out, it is clear that 10B51 is on the priority list. And, you know, trading uh, and illicit activity by corporate officers and directors and gatekeepers in general is on their, is on their high list. Um, that said, you know, it's, it's really too soon to see what enforcement actions they're bringing because these enforcement actions will take years. And so what you're seeing go through the pipeline now is sort of remnants of enforcement actions under the previous administration. Uh, and I think it's a question of how much do we let data guide our, uh, our enforcement cases. You know, I, I think that lawyers are, know the law, they know the law very well, but there's a joke that I think most lawyers agree with that they went to law school because they don't like math and they don't like data. And so I really do think that we need a big uptake, uh, an uptick, I should say, in the use of data and the use of math for our uh, enforcement uh, enforcement priorities. Now, they are using some algorithms, but you can put those on you know, you can put those on steroids. So think about what the SEC is being asked to do, right? They're outgunned and outmanned in terms of technology and staff, right? How are you going to pol police Rentec? How are you going to police Two Sigma? How are you going to police Citadel, who have enough money to hire not only the best legal teams, but also the best programmers and the brightest minds out there? And, you know, the, the sad answer is, is that you can't really compete. And so I, I think, you know, if I was sort of president for a day, SEC's budget needs to go up, not by single digits, but like 10X. And they need to start being able to pay competitively with the private sector uh, so that they can get the best minds to enforce the law. Uh, because right now, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, on the government pay scale are doing it because of the sense of mission and the sense of duty, not because it's, you know, the best paying job. Uh, out there for their skills. We're, we're going to talk more about corporate insider trading, but I, I want to pivot just for a second and then talk about government insider trading because it's been in the news a lot recently. I mean, there, were, there was some talk about what Fed governors did with, based on information they knew. Um, there's this joke 
uh, picture that goes around Twitter, which is basically like it lists the greatest investors of all, of all time. And there's a picture of Warren Buffett and right next to it is Nancy Pelosi. Um, so that there's been a lot of controversy about what government officials have been able to do in terms of trading on ins information they might know. So I'm just wondering in general, if you could talk about what the rules are that cover government officials and what changes we might need to see in those rules. Yeah. So, uh, fortunately, um, there is something called the stock act that was designed to prohibit trading on material, non-public information, uh, by Senate and Congress. Um, that's relatively recent. Um, interestingly, Richard Burr voted against, uh, like so who's against an insider, uh, uh, a rule prohibiting insider trading, Richard Burr, you know, who incidentally was accused of insider trading. Um, that prohibits them from trading on information that they learn from private house and Senate briefings. It does not, to my knowledge, does not extend to the fed, uh, and does not to my knowledge, certainly does not extend to the federal judiciary. So there's been recent Wall Street Journal articles uh, on trading by uh, federal judges. Um, and so part of the issue with why you needed that act is because neither classical theory nor misappropriation were being applied to the Senate and to the Congress. So before the Stock Act, imagine the senator learns, this actually happened, from a private briefing from Bernanke and Paulson that back during the uh, original housing financial crisis, the economy is going to go off, you know, it's going to fall into a crater. Can they trade on that information? Well, you would say, well, they're misappropriating the information for personal gain. Who are they misappropriating the information from? Do they have the fiduciary duty to the taxpayer? You know, and so there were these legal questions about how you would actually go after legally Senate and Congress for trading. And so that was, that led to the creation of the stock act that was in theory supposed to put an end to it. Stock act also required disclosure. Unfortunately, the disclosure is really, really poor. So, um, they file their trades, not really their trades ranges bought between 10,000 and 50,000 of IBM on paper with the government. And then they, that gets uploaded to a central website that you can go to and, and download the paper paper filings. It's not electronic disclosure. It's not machine readable in an easy manner. Um, so it's, it's not as transparent as the reporting regime around corporate insiders. Um, and so I, I think that's been an improvement obviously, but there's still, you know, we, you know, about Nancy Pelosi's trading because of those disclosures. What about her staff or the staff of any of them where there are no disclosures? Right. So when, when we see these banned behaviors, what you have to realize is that's what we see from the disclosure. That is some sense, the tip of the iceberg. And so if that's what you see, that's in the public domain. The real question is, is what's below the surface. Um, and so that's, I was very pleased to see the Wall Street Journal articles in the judiciary. There's all kinds of other questions that one should be asking. What about the trading of CDC officials? What about trade, you know, around contract awards, all sorts of uh, interesting stuff that I think should be in the public domain and should be disclosed. Yeah, it's, it seems like just like with corporate executives, we still have a lot of work to do uh, on the government side as well. Um, I want to ask you, before I head it back to Justin, I just want to ask you about one other paper I found really interesting that you wrote. It was called The Dark Side of Investor Conferences, Ev Evidence of Managerial Opportunism. And you sort of looked at investor conferences and how stock prices performed before and how stock prices performed after and what insiders were doing. You looked at a lot of interesting things. And so I'm just wondering if you maybe summarize what you found in that research. Yeah, so uh, I'll give you a uh, 
background, that's sort of the motivation for the paper, and then, we'll, and then the summary. Uh, in talking with a lot of uh, lawyers about, you know, insider trading and whatnot and what constitutes material non-public information, one of the things I found is, is that they really focus on earnings announcements, full stop. Not the Q, not the K, the earnings announcement, not the 8K. And part of that, I think, is because they're not accountants, they're not economists, they don't understand sort of all of the other material events that could go on out there. And so companies have blackout windows that prevent trading by their officers and directors around the earnings announcement, because that's the preeminent announcement that I think all lawyers recognize as being material. But when I realized that this is how people or how lawyers were thinking about it, I was like, well, what do I think of as being material events that, you know, maybe would evade uh, what a lawyer would think of as being a material event? And one of those was investor conferences, right? So you have an investor day or an analyst day and the company is sharing information. Maybe there's a reg FD disclosure um, and stock prices would move based on the information that was being shared in that conference uh, or that analyst day. And so we said, well, there's no blackout window around these. So let's look at trading around these conferences. Who's doing the trading? Or it's the person who's presenting at the conferences, the directors. What do we just look at descriptively around insider trading and, and disclosure around these conferences. And what we found, I was sort of struck by because you actually find a spike in trading before the conferences. So for earnings announcements, like Trading falls off the charts before an earnings announcement because everyone knows there's a blackout window. The executive knows there's a blackout window. So if you trade at the blackout window, like everyone's going to be paying attention. But there's no blackout window for investor conferences and a lot of people don't consider them material. And so what we find is there's actually a massive spike uh, in sales before investor conferences. And so, huh, that's interesting. Let's dig deeper. For which firms are there sales? Oh, well, it's the firms where there's a run-up in prices before the investor conferences. Huh, that's interesting. You know, what do they disclose it? Well, they're disclosing good news before the conference. Well, what happens after the conference? Well, after the conference, there's a return reversal. Apparently, they got some tough questions at the conference, and we show this very nice, like, pyramid-shaped run-up in prices at the conference, and then run down in prices after the conference. And so we were basically saying, hey, there's been all this academic literature and all this press about how important investor relations activities are and how important they are for disseminating information, getting it out there, getting your message out, talking to shareholders. But the dark side of investor relations is, you know, part of it on the one hand can be used to provide information and the other part can be to spin. And so what we were tending to focus on was the spin, the spin before the conference about how everything was great going rosy and then at the conference. Some institutional investors penetrated the spin and then things unwound pretty, pretty fast after that. Uh, so that's what we were looking at in that, uh, in that focusing on these events that people who know the setting would say unambiguously are material, but maybe someone who's operating at a macro level with a legal background would be like, eh, you know, like an audit report, is that material? I don't know. So same thing with the investor comp. Just want to say, uh, I definitely remember Dr. Evil and he actually did the pinky thing too. <laughs> um, that's good well it was same about the same generation you know so great great movie austin powers um i wanted to we're still sort of on this thread of some of your uh more recent research and you wrote a paper titled undisclosed sec investigations and i i thought this was i never knew this i always thought that when the sec was investigating a company um that they always had to disclose the fact that they were 
being investigated, but um, that's not the case, correct? And so this goes back to something that, that, you know, the Jack talked about this gray area. So most of my recent work has been focusing on settings where we would say that's material, non-public information, but the lawyers would say eh, facts and circumstances, not necessarily material, but anybody who knows markets and economics would say like, are you kidding me? And so undisclosed SEC investigations was, was that, was that paper. So I was reading wall street journal and saw mm-hmm. it wasn't that old. Um, it came out, got leaked that the SEC was investigating Under Armour for, um, pull forwards, uh, for revenue manipulation and Under Armour's price just got absolutely crushed, um, when that news broke in the Wall Street Journal and it wasn't Under Armour disclosing it, it had somehow leaked, um, that there was a foreign going investigation. And so that got me thinking, well, huh, they didn't have to disclose this. And so we were, we were very fortunate enough, um, to get data uh, from the SEC through a complex series of FOIA requests on all closed SEC investigations from, I think, 2002 to 2016. So closed. The entity name and the dates of the investigation. So that's sort of like the master list. Then we would cross that with the companies that actually disclosed the investigations. And it is the case, and it's, again, case law, uh, not code law, case law is that companies do not have to disclose SEC investigations or DOJ investigations before there'll be an enforcement action. Actually, there'll be something known as a Wells notice where the SEC basically says, Hey, we're going to enforce against you in the next month or two. Give us a reason why we shouldn't. Even that notice doesn't have to be disclosed. Uh, so the court has ruled perversely that because the outcome of the investigation is uncertain. It doesn't meet the disclosure threshold. No, I find that somewhat offensive as an accountant, because there's a lot of things that I have to account for as an accountant that are not certain, but we still have to disclose them. So, you know, the genesis of the paper was our realization that these things didn't have to be disclosed. So when we got data and looked at how pervasive is non-disclosure, and if it doesn't have to be disclosed, does that mean that insiders can actually trade on it? So if you're the officer director of the corporation and you get a memo from the GC saying, okay, the SEC is investigating, you know, Jim down in accounting for accounting fraud, can you sell your shares? So we typically think of a rule called disclosure of state that applies to officers and directors. Either you have information, either disclose the information to the public or abstain from trading. And this is a great example where that rule is violated. There is no disclosure and there is no abstention. In fact, we actually see a spike in trading of, of insiders at the firm, uh, at the outset of the SEC's communications, uh, to the, uh, to the corporation. So it's particularly galling, um, on many dimensions. And what sort of numbers are we talking here in terms of the percentage that are Disclosed and not disclosed. Visit the paper on my website to get the exact number. I want to say less than 50% disclosed. And I think within a 10 day window, we wanted to say less than 10%. So you can imagine where you wouldn't initially disclose that you're under investigation. And then when the investigation takes a turn to be more serious, you might disclose it like later. Um, but it is, it is generally not the case that the, that the investigations are disclosed. 
Whether they should be or not is another question. I mean, I'm not sure. Like, I could certainly understand the issuer's perspective saying, hey, the SEC is looking into something. Why should I be compelled to disclose that? It could be a nothing burger. But on the other hand, as the investor, it's like, yeah, it could be a nothing burger or it could be that your CEO is embezzling money. And so you should be compelled to disclose. Uh, and I would say that it's probably material. Like we've seen lately when there's news of an SEC investigation, even though it doesn't say how advanced the investigation is or what the SEC is looking into, the stock price moves. Um, so from an investor's perspective, it does appear to be material. Um, so that's why we sort of, we got really interested in it because it was an example of something that we thought was material, non-public information, but that it hadn't been considered material, non-public information from a legal perspective. So it's really this intersection of where the economics is disjoint with the law. You know, it's interesting. It must be at the advice of like corporate counsel as to when to disclose something or not, because you do hear about these SEC investigations. I mean, maybe even like one a day or something, or one every two days with a, you know, major company. So someone's advising them, okay, now's the time to get this out in the public domain. Yeah. I mean, so yes, absolutely. There's, there's the GC that's doing the advice. What I would ask the GC, and I know some GCs follow best practices. Like some are always surprised when I talk to them about my findings. They're like, you mean the SEC is investigating for accounting fraud and the GC at the company didn't stop all of the officers and directors from trading? Like if you're a GC and you get some information, the SEC is investigating you for accounting fraud. I would say if you do not, and I would say this as an expert, if you do not stop or prevent the trading of officers and directors, I'm not sure you're doing your job. I mean, imagine getting something from the SEC saying we're investigating your CFO or someone in your company for accounting fraud and you don't prohibit trading by officers and directors. Like that to me is just not doing due diligence. Um, so I'm kind of surprised at the lax, the laxness which with certain corporations and certain GCs treat their, uh, the trading of corporate insiders. You had another recent and interesting paper and the title of that was, and it's, it was more of an article, I think it was in the Stanford uh, closer look series. And the title was the spread of COVID-19 disclosure. And you used sort of the COVID and this black swan event to look at different companies, disclosure practices, and really how they varied across companies, industries, and, um, sort of what you can glean from that and almost in real time experience, all these different disclosure strategies. And so what did you what were the key findings of the research there? I would say the key finding was heterogeneity in the disclosure response. So some companies were completely upfront, talked about COVID a lot. Others didn't talk about it at all. And it led to some really interesting case examples. You know, you could compare like, um, Keurig, Dr. Pepper against Monster Beverage, you know, against sort of other players, uh, uh, in the industry and look to see how they're all treating COVID differently, right? Like you could probably good bet that COVID had similar effects on the beverage industry, similar effects on the airline industry. So you would think that within the industry, there would be some homogeneity in the disclosure responses to COVID, but that wasn't in fact, uh, wasn't in fact the case. Um, so that was really interesting. The other thing that was really interesting and one of the reasons why we did it is because uh, this was under the previous, uh, the Clayton uh, administration, there, 
there was no specific, at least that I'm aware of, disclosure rule that said, thou shalt disclose the following with respect to COVID. Instead, everything relied on the existing notion of materiality. And so you had press releases coming out from the SEC, from the enforcement directors, from the commissioners saying, hey, hey, we consider the following things material. You should really be thinking about materiality in that way. Because we have disclosure regime that says, hey, if it's material for company performance or risk, you have to disclose it. And that's what was being relied upon in compelling these companies to issue their disclosure. But if you don't have a rules-based disclosure regime, and a rules-based disclosure regime is when you say, like, you must disclose the pay ratio, CEO pay ratio. You must disclose, like, your number of employees. Those are rules. When you have principles, like disclose everything that's material. You get a lot more variation and a lot of variation, not only in what they're disclosing, but in the quality of the disclosure. So some companies would just have boilerplate about COVID. COVID affected our supply chain. We're uh, working remotely and nothing else. And then if you would press the company, well, is that really all you're disclosing about COVID? They would say, yeah, that's really the only material effect that it's had on our business. And then it would be on investors or on our enforcement agencies to do their due diligence and to dig deeper to see whether that was in fact the only material effect that COVID has had. So I, I think one of the takeaways from that is when we're in a principles-based disclosure regime of disclose things that are material, whether it's greenhouse gases or climate change disclosure or human capital disclosure or COVID disclosure, when it's principles-based as opposed to rules-based, you get a lot of heterogeneity in what gets disclosed and in the value of that disclosure to invest. What's interesting is in the paper, you have this chart where you're show, showing the percentage of companies disclosing COVID-19 and, you know, it starts at like zero. And then I think in the paper you have Moderna was the first one that mentioned COVID. And then, you know, as you go into February and early March, you see this, I mean, this is ultimately it ends with almost hundred percent of companies or close to, you know, referencing COVID. But, but it's almost like thinking about what was going on in the market at that point and the huge sell-off, obviously we bottomed, you know, within whatever 30 or 45 days of when the selling started, which very few people could have predicted that, but it's almost like something like this could be used as a indicator of, I don't know, maybe heightened, certainly heightened volatility. If it's around a negative disclosure thing, seeing how quickly sort of COVID ramped. Well, this also speaks to, you know, you asked me earlier, what could the SEC do? You know, we were doing that on public disclosure. The SEC could be running that model of public disclosure and say, oh, everyone else in the beverage industry disclosed COVID within three months in the material effect. Hmm, National Beverage Company, it's been a year and the word COVID or pandemic never appeared once in your corporate disclosure. Why is that, guys? Do we really think that you're that different from everyone else in the beverage industry? Right. And so you can imagine those questions being asked and those real-time surveillance algorithms being run. Uh, but you know, I, I'm not sure that that's how the SEC is thinking of things currently. Uh, so I, I think in, in general, um, you know, most of what I do is design algorithms. And so in general, I think they need to increase the extent to which they use, they use algorithms for enforcement, whether it's an in insider trading or in, you know, policing materiality disclosure. Um, just two more questions here, cause we're coming up on, uh, almost an hour, which this has been great, but the, the in doing some, some research for the interview, um, we realized that you actually teach a forensic analytics class. Um, and I think 
a lot of the research and correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the stuff that we're talking about here, some of the algorithms that you're creating are actually being developed in that course and being taught to students. Is that, is that what's happening? Maybe not developed in the course, but being, but being taught, you know, simpler versions of the algorithms are being, are being, are being taught. Yes, for sure. And so the, the class combines accounting, economics, and coding, uh, together. Uh, so it's a really popular class because it puts in practice, I think, um, you know, accounting knowledge about what's material, you know, econology, econ knowledge about how markets work and then coding skills about, you know, how to operationalize these algorithms on every publicly traded company, um, how to detect accounting fraud or what prediction software we can use to predict fraud or insider trading or detect you know, do textual analysis on, uh, on corporate disclosure. Sounds like a very cool course. I wish it was available when I was <laughs> in college. <clears throat> um, thanks. Yeah, it's, it's pretty popular. It's pretty popular. Hopefully, hopefully a few of them stay on as, as regulators and actually can help the, uh, SEC in the future. Well, yeah, this is the, always the, 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 the thing I worry about is, is if I'm, te you know, if I'm teaching all of these algorithms and teaching how to detect insider trading and accounting fraud. In the back of my mind, I do really wonder if I'm also teaching how to evade detection, detection algorithms as well. And so I hope that the knowledge gets used, uh, gets used for good. Um, but even if it doesn't to educate people about what's going on, uh, you know, to get back to sort of what you said at the beginning is that, you know, hopefully people don't realize or don't think that the market is, is rigged. I mean, I, I guess I approach it like this. I mean, when I play my seven-year-old daughter in Monopoly, I can't win. And the reason I can't win is because she always changes the rules of the game on me. But I feel like if I at least, there was at least transparency in terms of what was going on and there were these rules at the outset, then I could make better, I could make more informed decisions. And so I think that, you know, I have been shocked by what I've found. You know, I, I always thought that, and maybe this was, you know, a little bit naive upbringing, markets were free, fair, and efficient, equal access to information. And... It's anything but that, uh, out there. So, you know, that's what I think the takeaway is of my work and, and probably of the class. Your daughter gets a thousand dollars when she passes go and you get nothing. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So just uh, one last sort of standard closing question. We like to ask all of our guests, um, and I'm interested to see how you're going to answer this is based on your experience in the market and with your research. Um, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? It's the average investor, huh? Wow. Diversification, you know, don't try and pick stocks, try and go with like the standard, you know, Vanguard ETF. Um, I, I would say that it's, it, it is actually jungle out there and there's a lot more at least sharks than I was aware of, but you know, maybe everybody recognizes that I'm just in the academic bubble. Um, but I think there has been a lack of connection between, uh, our current political state in this country and the state of white color crime enforcement. Um, and I've really been aware of this only occurred to me, I would say in the past year where, you know, people look out at sort of what's going on in markets. And if there isn't back to perception that markets are rigged or that our enforcement agencies are letting certain, you know, high profile shady individuals or criminal individuals off the hook, that feeds into the political element. And 
if you have that build over time, you eventually get to a point where the average American feels like they'd rather burn the system down than actually try and reform it because it's not working for them. And so I don't think it's been recognized the extent to which our enforcement of our white collar crime laws actually can contribute uh, to the political system and to the, you know, the political uh, discourse. Um, a friend of mine actually teaches at uh, UT Austin, or colleague, I should say, teaches at UT Austin. Um, and uh, he asked his class, you know, about the Elizabeth Holmes trial about, you know, how many people think she's guilty? How many people think she get, she'll get all? What percentage of undergrads do you think believe that Elizabeth Holmes will get all and won't, won't face any prison time? 50%, right? And, and he, he reported that if you ask those that didn't say, you know, prison time, how long? Eh, less than a year. So that, that I would say is representative of how cynical the incoming upcoming generation is and if anything i think if you asked older generations what percentage it would be you know even higher would think that she would get off and i think that informs people's uh political leanings on you know so i, I think if, if you want to start changing the narrative politically in the u.s you have to start changing uh law enforcement thank you for broadening that last question out that's great um if people want to learn more about your research what you're working on um, read some of these articles, which we, we will put links to, um, many of these pieces in the show notes, but where can they go to find out more? Uh, great question. So I'm director of the Wharton forensic analytics lab. So you can Google Wharton forensic analytics lab. It'll be the first page. Uh, it's basically a list of all the papers I've written, what we're doing, all the media that, that, uh, projects that we're working on, all the teaching stuff, cases that we're developing. Uh, and so you can download all of the stuff there. And also, you know, we've got a section if you're interested in partnering with the lab. Um, we always need private sector partners, need new data sets, uh, need sponsors for our, our activity. Research is costly, got to pay for those data sets. And uh, so, yeah, so I would encourage everybody to check out the Forensic Analytics Lab, what we're doing, and, and shoot me an email and Google me, shoot me an email if you're interested and, and have further questions. That's great. Thank you very much, Daniel. I really enjoyed this discussion. Very interesting stuff. Thank you. Yep, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.